This is the Pain Information Network. We're at 22. All right, let's do this. Um, you got Hanson again, and there's more questions to be answered. i got to get through these questions as best I can. Um, no medical advice. Talk it over with a qualified individual, but I'm going to tackle some of your questions that you posed to me on paininformation.com, so please go by paininformation.com. Get us more questions, and then go to iTunes. And leave a review, please. <clears throat> it's very helpful for us. Okay, let's get right to this. All right. Fibromyalgia. There, there's a lot of questions about fibromyalgia. Well, the way I look at fibromyalgia is two things. <clears throat> you either have fibromyalgia or you're fibromyalgic. You have many of the symptoms, many of the problems of fibromyalgia. But you don't fall into the full spectrum. Now, fibromyalgia has to be understood it is a syndrome. It is a group of problems. It is not one specific diagnosis. There's no test. I can't just say, here's a test. You have fibromyalgia. We have to take a group of problems. And you heard me talk about the fibro five, irritable bowel, chronic fatigue, muscle pain, pelvic pain, and headache. Those are what I call fibro five. And we look at those and we say, well, what can we make a positive effect on? particularly headaches. We can help headaches. That's a whole big topic as we've gone through. So it's a complex problem. Doctors don't always embrace complexity. They want their day to go pretty smoothly, then go home and, you know, pet their dogs, see their family and that sort of thing. And fibromyalgia is complex. It's going to take some time. It's going to take some education with the patient or with the individual that believes that a family member or they have fibromyalgia. So it's a kind of slow down, take your time kind of conversation in the room. It's hard to do. It's hard to do because there's so many questions and they read so much. Um, Fibromyalgia patients tend to be pretty well educated and that's good. Um, But there's a lot of junk out there. So let's go through this. Okay. What are the symptoms? Well, you know, you have that poor memory, muscle fatigue, muscle pain, pelvic pain sometimes. Um, It's always kind of hard to understand what the irritable bowel is, but it's probably part of the central amplification disorder. A lot of them have uh, TMJ, again, a central amplification disorder. In other words, pain inside out as opposed to outside in. And uh, they have um, sometimes blurred vision, um, a number of symptoms. The thing is, what you're looking at is a pain problem that is coming from the central nervous system. Again, inside out as opposed to outside in. So let's get into it a little bit. So I have this pain, and my doctor says I don't have anything wrong with my muscles, and this irritable bowel is driving me nuts, and this pelvic pain, I don't understand it, but it's ruining many parts of my life. And uh, we could just go on and on. Well, what's happening is probably in the central nervous system, there's a certain type of irritability. It might be from a chemical irritability. It might be from any one of a number of problems. And we're going to get into that on pain, addiction, and depression. We're going to talk about that. But what's probably happening in the central nervous system, when you look at it neurobiologically, is the pain is being amplified uh, through many mechanisms and uh, the irritability occurs because there's an imbalance in some of these mechanisms. 
so way beyond the scope of this conversation is uh, the deep uh, darkness of neurobiology. But the, the fact of the matter is that's how we treat fibromyalgia. So I get asked that. How do you treat it? Okay. Well, you want to increase people's function and activity. We do know that increasing your activity in fibromyalgia changes the outcome. It's hard for us to convince people you got to get moving to feel better when you don't want to move because you don't feel good. But it actually is important. Let's talk about this thing called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, BDNF. There's a certain part of this brain in the central nervous system that has a lot to do with pain processing that requires uh, this process called synaptogenesis to occur to elevate brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Oh, my God, what is all this? Don't worry about the details. The point is, in many disease states, BDNF is depressed. And when you increase BDNF, you feel better. That's what exercise does. So there's a neurophysiologic basis for us saying, go get exercise. It really helps. It helps with almost all disease states. The more you do, the more you can do. All right. So what's going on? What's going on in fibromyalgia is, for some reason, uh, it could have been inflammatory, it could have been personal issues, it could have been so many different things, an event occurred. The neurobiology changed a little bit for whatever reason. Um, There are theories. uh, And now you hurt. It's widespread pain. You hear that a lot. I also hear that, well, I was in my shoulder today. It's down in my low back. It's in my legs. My calves hurt, etc. Well, that's probably true. It's going to be migratory, but we don't want to chase the pain. That's rule five. We want to improve your function. So uh, what we do is we look at you from a global perspective. First of all, let's get the diagnosis, all right? That's one of our rules. What is the diagnosis? Number two, are there comorbidities? A lot of people that have fibromyalgia also have trouble with activity, hence they may gain a little bit of weight, more stress uh, biomechanically in the lumbar spine. Therefore, they have more problems with kind of the aches and pains that are not only associated with fibromyalgia, but just life. You know, I call it living well. A lot of people get arthritis or old Arthur, and they've lived well. That's just part of living, and we're living longer. So we look for the other things we can change. Remember, fibromyalgia is a syndrome. It's a group of problems. Okay, so what are we going to do? Well, I think one of the things that people don't like to hear, but I think the thing I have to impose is that it's not necessarily an opioid deficiency. In other words, I don't think narcotics are our first choice. I know you want a pain pill and I know you want to feel better and you may be able to have those and that's fine. But getting moving, getting these adjunctive medications uh, such as gabapentinoids or the Neurontins, the Lyricas or pregabalins, uh, getting those in you, and they're actually labeled for fibromyalgia. How about the Cymbalta or uh, Duloxetine? Um, and start thinking, well, why are we doing those? Once again, inside out as opposed to outside in. Why is it an antidepressant such as Duloxetine 
gets labeled for peripheral neuropathy, low back pain, uh, all this muscle ache and pain stuff. Why? Because they recognize inside out neurobiologically in that primitive part of the brain. So that's what we're going to do. <clears throat> and we're going to keep coming back to fibromyalgia as I get the questions. So summarize it. Okay, first of all, we're going to get you moving. You need to get moving. You don't like it, but you got to get moving. Number two, modifiable features in your health profile. Change the things you can change. One pound a month is fine. Two pounds a month is a little better. Don't uh, try to be a superstar and go on some crash diet where you're going to lose 10, 15 pounds a month. It's ridiculous. Remember, two pounds a month over two years, do the math. It's real good, and it stays off. If you try to lose 5 to 10 pounds a month, it's not going to stay off. It's going to, you're going to rebound. It's going to come right back. Number three, look at non-narcotic medication alternatives, the gabapentinoids, the other medications. And I'm not kidding. These people are like anybody else in pain. Pain, addiction, depression, neurobiologically save, share the same mechanisms. They're, they're sad. They have situational depression and anxiety. We can help that. And so we often treat uh, fibromyalgia and fibromyalgic-like symptoms with antidepressant medication. Um, and some people are going to say, well, my doctor also wants me to go on amitriptyline or elevil. My doctor wants me to go on uh, nortriptyline. I mean, we, we could go right down the list of all these different medications. The point is this. We want to get you moving and treat you symptomatically. All right, let's go right into the next problem. And this is another question. I can't sleep. Most fibromyalgia patients and most patients in pain say they can't sleep. Let's go back to benzodiazepines from the last episode. <clears throat> People take benzodiazepines and they think they're going to help them sleep. That's not true. They actually interfere with sleep architecture. Actually, you're not doing yourself any favors by taking these drugs that make you feel relaxed. Maybe they make you feel pretty good, but you're not going to hit uh, a solid stage four. You probably get lost up there in alpha two intrusion. You're just not going to get down deep. And that's what helps your memory. So many people with fibromyalgia and pain problems say, I can't remember anything. I can't think. That's your prefrontal cortex connecting neurobiologically to the central nervous system, this primitive part of the brain, and if you don't sleep well, you just can't incorporate memory well. So how do you sleep? Well, you, you, you try to pick some of these meds that we're going to call them Z drugs, and I'll go into a whole new podcast on that. Uh, the Ambien's and the like, uh, uh, the uh, other drugs that are traditionally used like amitriptyline, nortriptyline, and the like. Uh, the non-habit-forming alternatives. We do not like aprazolam. Clonopin can be used. It helps with neuropathic pain, but it's a pretty potent benzodiazepine, and we just got to be careful. That's rule four. Know thy drugs. So another question I get is barbiturates. What, what about barbiturates? That's if urinals and the like. They help my headache. Do they really help your headache? Um, are they really helping you overall? Are they improving your function and quality of life? Well, they're pretty habit-forming, and they open up a part of your cell that has a channel uh, at the cellular uh, level that's important. 
because some people also drink alcohol, and you can't mix these drugs with alcohol. They're almost historical. Barbiturates were used as uh, little helpers in the 50s and 60s and completely uh, uh, blitzed by bar- uh, benzodiazepines, which were heralded when they came into play as the safe alternative. Well, every drug has its issue. Um, yeah, we went from barbiturates to benzodiazepines. We have a whole new set of problems. I do believe they're safer, benzodiazepines, than barbiturates. But uh, please be very careful with these drugs. They're very potent, and be careful with what you mix. Again, talk to your doctor or your uh, healthcare provider uh, and bring all your medicines in a little bag or a list and don't leave any of them out. Okay. Next thing I have here is uh, folks asking, uh, I'm on pain pills. My doctor put me on this really strong pain medicine, but it doesn't last. What do you mean it doesn't last? Well, it just is one of those pills that just doesn't hold me through the day like it's supposed to. It's a twice-a-day medicine, and it quits, so about three or four. Well, you're right, and... Uh, this is a whole nother podcast about uh, neurobiology and genetics. We'll talk about that. Not every drug is going to be textbook where you take the medicine and you follow the prescription on the bottle and it's a, a strict uh, twice a day medication and you get 12 hours of relief with each pill. It doesn't work that way. Uh, people have different ways of metabolizing drugs and distributing them and uh Everybody's a little different. So what do you do? Well, you talk it over with your healthcare provider that's prescribing these medications. Sometimes they'll give you a, what's called a breakthrough medication or prescribe something as an adjunct. Um, breakthrough medicines probably aren't the best idea, but it's done. And adjuncts are, are really helpful, such as the gabapentinoids and the like. Uh, or even NSAIDs. All right, let's go back to NSAIDs. More on NSAIDs. I get asked a lot about goodie powders, and I get asked about uh, some of these other branded medications that <clears throat> are over-the-counter. Well, let me tell you, the over-the-counter medications are not necessarily benign. As uh, we mentioned, um, there's a study, and uh, you can go back to the NSAIDs um, podcast, but the Singh study showed that more people died from ibuprofen than from AIDS. And it was a few years back, uh, probably not the case now, but these are not benign drugs, even though they're over-the-counter. And I have patients tell me they take these powders and they take all these other uh, over-the-counter medications, and they just take them and take them and take them. Well, you're going to get problems. And... The problems you can get are either GI, they strip away your stomach's way of protecting itself, you get ulcers, uh, they can hurt your liver, they can hurt your kidneys, <laughs> they can do so much. And the newer recognized risk is the cardiovascular risk. They actually stopped a study on a leave in uh, California, I believe it's California, when they saw an uh, increased bump in uh, OTC uh uh, related uh, cardiovascular events. So if you look at it, you find it. If you don't look at it, you don't find it. All right, <clears throat> let's go on to the next one, and we'll pretty much wind it out for you. I'm 
sure you're tired of hearing me. What is a trigger point? Well, as Dr. Travell in the 60s um, mapped out trigger points, and these are little tender spots, and I've alluded to them. They are uh, tender areas that uh, were felt to be outside uh, to in, and uh, Dr. Travell was uh, Dr. or was uh, President Kennedy's uh, physician, and she uh, very elegantly and uh, now I think historically put these trigger points into relationship. Well, that's fine. I I I think that's important um, to consider trigger points as a source of pain. These tender knots uh, above your scapula. Uh, they may be in your low back. They may be on the side of your leg. And they're all over the place. You can Google them and you can see these trigger points. But they don't necessarily mean anything. <clears throat> what they really mean, probably, is a peripheral event from a central nervous system problem. In other words, um, they are a manifestation of something that isn't on the outside. It's more inside. So we've talked a little bit about that. And what people do is they... Do everything from deep tissue massage and and massage in general to injecting them uh, to putting uh, tens units on and and doing uh, muscle stimulation uh, transcutaneous uh, medications and otherwise through the skin and the like. The point is this: um, you're going to do a lot better with trigger points if you think inside out as opposed to outside in. I mentioned it, but uh, I see it. Uh, Patients come in after they've had a massage and they feel good for a day. And then the next day, they don't feel so good. They think it's a little worse. So in other words, you're taking that peripheral manifestation of a central nervous system problem and you're <laughs> what you're doing is throwing gasoline on fire by aggravating it. Okay, that's the world according to me. Okay, so that's a good segue right into the new podcast, The World According to Me. It's watme.life, not a .com or anything, it's .life. So it's W-A-T-M-E dot life. I'm just going to have uh, patients on. I'm going to have people on. I'm going to have uh, uh, the folks that are intimately related to uh, us and what we do and uh, just kind of uh, get out there and just uh, let our opinions be known because it's a world according to me. And we'll try to keep it as relevant as we can to helping you. So I'm going to wind this up, but please uh, remember us at uh, paininformation.com and leave an iTunes review. And we'll catch you on the other side. 